You're listening to His Night Begins Season 3 Part 2. You are a superstitious man, aren't you? Virat said, as he watched Ledu Vinayak ring a tiny prayer bell and bless the Porsche interior of the Mercedes van with incense sticks. Its scented white trails caressed the leather trimmings, the beeping instruments and the metal surfaces of several weapons. The vehicle was their command center for the evening. the home base from where they would launch remote attacks to decimate the syndicate's drug manufacturing facility virat didn't blame the man for being superstitious such was the complexity of what they were attempting he mentally checked off the steps they had to accomplish to successfully complete the mission first up the guard on the tower overlooking the insertion point for the probe had to be eliminated The sniper rifle fitted with a silencer would still make a substantial sound so the pastor's men would need to roar past the entrance of the warehouse on their harleys to mask the noise Virat would then take out the camera pointing directly at the conduit junction where the gas pipeline entered the building with a well-placed shot with the prying eyes of the gunman and the camera eliminated Sartaj Singh and another member of the motorcycle gang would insert the probe into the pipeline with a custom device Vinayak had designed for them. Once this was accomplished, Vinayak would remotely drive the automated vehicle loaded with explosives into the front gate, taking out the guards and decimating the entrance. This would grant Virat and team access to the complex should the probe fail to work. they would have to get their hands dirty and burn the whole thing to the ground themselves however if vinayak is able to guide the probe to a previously designated strategic point within the building and detonate the bomb boom one of the largest drug factories in the subcontinent would be reduced to ash within seconds Virat frowned as he considered the steps. All of this sounded good on paper. There was room for so much to go wrong. Make sure you share your blessings on that. Virat said sarcastically to Vinayak, pointing at the sniper rifle. The evening sky was a raging inferno. A photographer's wet dream. Let's do this. Virat said into his mouthpiece as he lay prone on a hilltop not far from the warehouse. The factory was located at the fringes of the town near a marshy tract of land bordering a shanty town which housed poor laborers. The slums sprawled away from the steaming bogs and the drooping foliage of wetland trees like a quilt made from odd cuts of filthy fabric. The large steel-framed warehouse which looked completely out of place was set at a distance from the surrounding houses made of misshapen mud bricks asbestos rotting wood and filthy plastic cladding according to vinayak luckily the homes were far enough from the facility thereby minimizing damage to their structural integrity from multiple explosions 
I don't want innocent people dying. Virat had insisted. The only other oddity in this godforsaken place was the beautifully constructed road built by the syndicate to ferry in raw materials and ferry out the drugs. Virat waited patiently on the hilltop overlooking the facility for three sets of radio responses as he readied the rifle. The weapon in question was a modernized Russian 8.6mm VSV-338 with a range of 1,500 meters and a one minute of angle accuracy. Virat had used several amazing sniper rifles over the years, but he loved and cherished a manually operated rotary bolt-action rifle the most. I'm good to go, starting the car now, Vinayak said. My men are ready to ride by. The pastor said. I have readied the probe injector, Sartaj said. Once the three messages were received at Virat's end, the hitman popped the five-round cartridge in and scoped the targets. First, the man dressed in a green camouflage outfit, located on the only guard tower close to the front boundary wall. Virat then panned the scope to the camera angled on the spot where the gas pipeline was exposed. Virat quickly glanced the guards roving the compound on foot. He counted four up front, including the gunman in the cramped guardhouse adjoining the gate. No doubt there'll be more inside, Virat thought. The Harleys roared in the distance, and the sound grew in intensity as the bikes approached the road that snaked past the warehouse entrance. Virat observed the guards turn in the direction of the sound with a concerned look on their faces. He pulled the bolt forward and then back down in an arc. The silent zero harvester high-bore suppressor, which Leduvinayak talked non-stop about for 15 minutes straight, would do its best to muffle the sound. But Virat needed the pastor's Harleys to help him out. motorcycles roared past the front entrance. The guards tensed and moved up to check out the intruders. Virat pulled the trigger. The guard on the tower twitched and fell where he stood. The bolt was pulled up in an arc and then backwards to eject the casing. Virat then deployed the bolt to pump the bullet into the firing chamber. The camera was now in his crosshairs. He took a small breath in and exhaled slowly into the trigger pull. The camera splintered and dangled from its perch. Virat watched through the scope as Sartaj and another bikey prowled along the front wall of the compound to get to the conduit junction. The scope turned to the gate, where the guards looked on with concern at the bikes that were now speeding away into the distance. The thugs watched on, shaking their heads, wondering what that was all about. Sartaj and his assistant were far away from their prying gaze and immune to discovery by the guard on the tower or the camera. When he was in position, Sartaj and his partner deployed the probe injector, which looked like a large metal syringe. The men placed the end of the wide metal tip onto the pipe 
and flicked on a few switches on its side. Uh, is my baby working? Vinayak inquired. He was seated in his van about half a kilometre away from Virat's location. I think so. How far away is the car? Virat asked. If I were Sartaj and Ko, I would get out of there like my ass was on fire. Vinayak said, maneuvering the joysticks on the large control pad he was using to remotely control the automated vehicle packed with explosives. Very poetic, Virat said with a smile as he watched on. Sartaj lifted up the injector and flashed a thumbs up in Virat's direction. Sartaj has bailed, Virat said. Acknowledged, Vinayak said. You know, I was wondering, why do you need the car if you're using the probe to blow up the warehouse? Vinayak asked. I want to be able to get into the compound and finish the job myself, if your amazing Chinese tech doesn't work, Virat said. What? When have I sold you a dud? Vinayak sounded hurt. Sorry, bud, but I like to be prepared for all eventualities, Virat said. He heard Vinayak snort and displeasure on his earpiece. Happy to prove you wrong, boss, Vinayak said. More than happy to eat my own words, Virat said with a chuckle. Virat could hear the car now. The BMW iNext purred as it hurtled towards the gate of the drug factory. Five, four, three. Then I counted down as he watched the camera feed from the front grille of the car. Two, one. The car crashed into the gate at full speed. The impact of the car severely compromised the structural integrity of the gate and the adjacent guardhouse. But the vehicle did not explode. The guard trapped within the damaged guardhouse shouted for help. The gunmen inside the compound rushed towards the gate. Fuck! Fucking fucker! Vinayak said over the radio feed. What's wrong? Virat asked. Alarm bells were triggered within the factory. Virat knew they had a short window of time before reinforcements arrived. What do I do? Virat screamed into his mouthpiece. I'm working on the remote trigger. Bear with me, Vinayak said. Virat sprang up from his prone position and ran down the hill in the direction of the factory. What now? Virat said. I think... The car exploded. The detonation disintegrated the gate, sending a wash of flames and shrapnel towards the entrance of the factory. All the guards caught in the maelstrom were reduced to a mass of charred flesh in an instant. The guardhouse crumpled like it was made of paper, and the guard seated within disgorged his blood and internal organs onto the shattered glass facade. Big cracks resembling the feet of demonic birds arced their way through the front wall. In one vulnerable spot, 
the barrier fell inwards, leaving a gap in the wall that allowed easy access to the compound. Shabash Vinayak, Virat said into his mouthpiece, Time to trigger the probe. Virat could hear the cheers of the other members of his team on the radio waves. Uh, premature celebrations, guys, Vinayak said. What now? Virat asked. The scanner tells me that the probe has reached its destination, but uh, I am unable to detonate the device. I need to be closer to the factory to activate it. How close? Virat inquired. From just inside the wall, maybe? Vinayak said. Virat sighed. Drive towards me, Ladoo, he said. Virat was now facing the damaged entrance to the factory, which featured disintegrated metal and damaged masonry swathed in a blanket of fire. He raised the rifle scope to eye level, and he took out three guards in succession as he walked towards the gate. Virat could hear the sound of the Mercedes van speeding up behind him. More guards spilled out from the building. Some had guns. Some held machetes. Vinayak's van braked right next to Virat, and he handed the remote trigger to the hitman from the driver's side window. How are you going to do this? Vinayak asked. The old-fashioned way. Virat said. Virat drew his Heckler & Koch P-30L fitted with a custom compensator. He cradled the gun close to his body, lifted the sight to eye level and walked through the gap in the wall. The P-30L was a thing of beauty. While the Picatinny rail, moulded into the front of the frame, was designed for easy mounting of accessories, it gave the handgun the aesthetic appearance of a weapon forged by the god of war. The sight of Virat's tall, muscular frame, dressed in a black t-shirt and combat cargo pants, wielding a superior combat weapon, sent waves of terror through the hearts of the syndicate's guards, even though they outnumbered him ten to one. It resulted in misfires or poorly aimed shots directed at the hitman. A few bullets bust past his head, but Virat was unharmed in the initial onslaught of fire. My turn, Virat said. In quick succession, headshots bloomed everywhere, dropping men like they were insects crashing against an invisible wall of electricity. A mini-inferno which raged in the aftermath of the detonation and the shimmering heat radiating from the exploded car transformed Virat into a phantom from the pits of hell. A bullet grazed Virat's shoulder and claimed a chunk of flesh, before a second one slammed straight into the Kevlar plate in his chest. It forced him onto one knee. Virat bit down on his lips and thumped the bulletproof vest layered underneath his shirt a few times. Then he took in a series of deep breaths, hyper-oxygenating his blood. He mouthed as he let the pain wash over him. 
He inhaled sharply and focused his mind on the present. Come on, he said, before thumbing the ambidextrous magazine release lever to eject the used cartridge and pop in a new one. He stood up and transitioned into a combat stance with ease, head upright, feet in a restrained boxer stance, toes pointing at the target, his body leaning slightly forward. The muzzle moved from one target to the other with practiced ease and a bloody massacre unfolded. A ballet of gunfighting quickly culled the herd of thugs from ten to four. The remaining four, carrying bladed weapons, had used Virat's focused attempts at killing the others to get close to him. Virat's training kicked in. Tactical switch. Virat muttered and he holstered his gun and in the same move pulled out a freshly stoned M-Tech Special Ops Combat Bowie knife. Virat ducked underneath the first machete swinging in his direction and thrust his knife in an upward motion. His forceful stab penetrated the attacker's eye. Virat pulled the knife back and sprung aside just as another machete arced down to slice him open. It missed him and slashed the concrete. Virat landed a powerful sidekick into the belly of the assailant. The precise application of all the power generated by his posterior chain sent the man sprawling backwards. One assailant successfully landed a haymaker and Virat reeled. But before the next punch could find its mark, Virat leapt forward and smashed the man's nose in with the butt of his knife before landing a clean cut across his neck. The man stumbled back, his hands failing to stop the forceful spray of blood shooting out from the wound. Another man who was bent low at his waist charged Virat. Virat did not let the man who was attempting to rugby tackle him succeed. The contract killer quickly took aim and threw the blade at the top of the guard's head. The man flopped to the floor, the bowie sticking out of his head like a fork impaled on a piece of fruit. The final enemy, the assailant Virat had kicked and sent sprawling to the ground, had recovered. He had found a gun on the floor and was now pointing it in Virat's direction with a lazy, sideways rapper-thud grip. You are going to die, motherfucker, the man said. Amateur, Virat said. As the hapless thug looked on, Virat's right hand procured the gun from his holster in a quick-draw move that would have made competitive shooters proud. Virat pulled the trigger before the syndicate goon could even shout out in surprise. Virat quickly surveyed his surroundings, and when he was satisfied with his handiwork, he holstered his gun in a flash. He looked at the warehouse that had ruined the lives of millions of young Indians and raked in massive profits for the syndicate. The unceasing alarms and the crackling of flames formed a perfect backdrop for its imminent demise. He pulled the remote control from his pocket. Hope that puja of yours actually means something to the gods, Vinayak, Virat said into the mouthpiece. Virat heard Vinayak pray to Ganesha and Shiva and Durga in his earpiece. Ledu threw in Allah and Jesus for a good measure, hoping to salvage his reputation. Virat smiled as he walked towards the gap in the wall with the intention of exiting the wretched place. And just before he crossed the threshold... He triggered the explosive. 
Did you see that explosion? Kaboom! Sky high! Sky high! Abinayak said excitedly, like a young man who had successfully completed his first trip to a brothel. Vinayak ran around, giving high-fives to Vidart, the pastor, Sartaj Singh and other members of the Baiki gang. They were celebrating the success of the mission in the sanctuary's canteen. You did it, Vinayak, Sartaj said cheerfully as he landed some hard thumbs on Vinayak's back. By oath I did good, my Sikh brother from another mother, Vinayak said. Vinayak's large belly, acquired through years of dedicated ledu eating, bounced every time he let out a raucous laugh of joy. The mood in the room was heady and hopeful, and for a while, everyone forgot about the war they may soon have to wage against the syndicate. The operation had gone off without too many glitches, and there was a good chance they would escape the syndicate's scrutiny. Also, the general consensus was that the syndicate had lost track of Virat. The pastor had asserted that in their hunt for the saboteurs, the syndicate would most likely focus on the bigger players, like, say, Chetiar's family, or one of their many other significant competitors. Yet the fear lingered. The syndicate's playbook was similar to bloody Mexican cartels like the Zetas. They were unpredictable, violent and extremely dogged. Virat and his team would celebrate tonight. But starting tomorrow, they would have to watch their backs like their lives depended on it. The pastor was of the opinion that they should all hit the mattresses for a few months. Locked down till the stormy aftermath of the hit-and-run operation had dissipated. Virat, meanwhile, wanted to get his hands on Pepe if the opportunity arose. Vinayak was assisting him in this task, leeching every last cent of Virat's savings in the process. You have saved a lot of lives, Virat. I think we have scared them enough to move their operations away from the district. Thank you, the pastor said to Virat as they watched Vinayak clowning around with the boys. Even Praveen had stepped out of the clinic to celebrate with the gang. How is his treatment going? Virat asked the pastor. Good. He's showing progress, the pastor said. Sartaj Singh approached both of them and said, I'm going on a beer run, Virat Bhai. Do you need something? I'm happy with my drink here, Virat said, lifting up the Jim Beam and Coke blend. I'm good. The pastor said with a smile. You are truly amazing, Viradbhai. I feel blessed to have witnessed the fury of your avatar today. Sartaj Singh said. You are not quite bad yourself, Virat said, landing a hard smack on Sartaj's arm. We couldn't have done this without you, brother. The pastor joined in on the praise. Sartaj had been with him from the very beginning. He was like a blood brother. Look after yourself and call us if you run into any trouble, the pastor said. I'm going to be fine, Sartaj said as he headed for the exit.
Sartaj was riding through the balmy night on his Harley, enjoying the solitude and the sight of the shimmering stars in the heavens. There was no one on the highway at this time of the night. Just a man and his machine merging to become one body and soul as they surfed the black ribbon of asphalt that stretched on endlessly into the horizon. He was miffed at the thought of stopping at the bottle shop and then heading back to the party with cartons of beer. Maybe he could just keep going on his metal beast for miles and miles, to faraway places, to distant shores. Once he got there, he wouldn't stop. He would just keep going and going till the road ended on a promontory. He would drink lots of beer and watch endless ocean sunsets. That wouldn't be such a bad life, Sartaj thought with a smile. He noticed bats flying above him, their silhouetted shapes hiding the stars briefly as they screeched off to their night roost. What he didn't notice was a black Volvo station wagon that was parked innocently on the side of the road, almost made invisible by the fidelity of its paint job with the darkness of the night. The vehicle did not need its headlight to find its prey, and it sprung from where it lay dormant like a black panther pouncing on its prey. It sideswiped the back wheel of the motorcycle and brought man and machine down with an ear-piercing shriek, followed by a sickening metallic crunch. Sartaj broke every bone on the left side of his body. Only his head was insulated from the jarring crash by the open-faced helmet. The machine dragged his shattered body along for some distance, trailing sparks, before it came to a stop. Sartaj tasted blood in his mouth. He felt stabbing pain radiating from every cracked bone in his body. He tried to breathe, to pump some oxygen into his system. But he couldn't. His lungs were filling up with blood. He could still move his right arm, so he flapped it like the wing of a wounded bird. There was the sound of leather boots approaching his resting place. He wondered who it was. He wondered if it was an accident or if the syndicate had already found them. The Nishachar stopped beside him and sat down on one knee. He gently stroked the sides of Sartaj's helmet. His eyes were pitch black and did not betray any sense of sympathy. You know, my man, the Celts who lived in France thousands of years ago are meant to have put the heads of their enemies on spikes and displayed it for a long time in their villages to show everyone that they could possess someone's whole being and treat it like a piece of fruit, baking in the afternoon heat for all to see, for all eternity. Power, dominion over those who are inferior to you, he said. Sir Thans tried to say something, 
but he just gurgled up some blood. I just wanted to give you some context for what I'm about to do to you, Nishajar said, pulling out a machete that was hooked to the back of his jacket. Sartaj looked back up at the sky, which was now filled with the screeches and calls of bats. There were thousands of them, blocking the divine light of the heavens, ushering in the darkness, as they embarked on a nocturnal migration to some forsaken province of the night. Moments after Sartaj strolled out of the sanctuary's canteen on a beer run, Virat felt Ledu Vinayak's chubby hands on his shoulder. We have a hit on Pepe, he said. What? How? Virat asked. You know how everyone thinks the head of the syndicate is completely off the grid and untraceable? Not necessarily true. I present to you the details of a watching brief on our man, Vinayak said smugly. A watching brief meant the law enforcement organization was in the intelligence collection phase and there was no intention or enough evidence to initiate an immediate arrest. At this stage, the organization would track data from travel manifests or CCTV cameras or GPS to keep a tab on the movements of the person of interest. However, they would not have a surveillance team on the ground. Who has a watching brief on our man? Virat asked out of interest. Interpol, Vinayak said. Virat's eyes widened. Vinayak pushed his chest out and strutted around like a rooster. Your man got into the Interpol database. Shabash, Virat said. Uh, There is only one catch. We have to leave now, if you want to put a bullet in his head, Vinayak said. Hmm, Virat said. Where is he? Baudun, Vinayak said. I will brief you on our way there. Uh, it will take us six hours by road, Vinayak began to say. Four if I am driving, Virat said with a smile. Let's go finish this. Baudhun was once a famous Buddhist pilgrimage centre, where people who renounced materialism came to meditate in ashrams which were renowned for their adherence to a regime of total silence. Many years ago, a Mumbai-based casino magnate arrived at one such ashram on a ten-day retreat, encouraged by a disturbing bout of nagging by his wife. He had a revelation under one of the people trees as he sat there in a rather awkward-looking Padmasana. What if this could be the home of his dream project, a mecca 
of gambling and prostitution based around a superbike racing circuit. That was the end of Old Bauthun, where saffron-clad monks, hippies wearing hemp, and linen outfits with ohm plastered all over it, and overweight city dwellers having a midlife crisis roamed its quaint unpaved roads, sipped coffee in its vegan cafes, or browsed trinkets in its street markets. The new Bauthun had skyscrapers, tree-lined boulevards, brothels, three casinos, restaurants owned by TV star chefs, and an artificial beach featuring sand imported from Australia. Pepe Thirimal D'Souza surveyed this vast expanse of progress and excess from his 30th floor suite while eating cornflakes. The body of the young man he had raped and strangled still rested on his bed. The corpse's arms and legs seemed to be at odd angles, giving him the appearance of a mannequin. Manish Chawla, Pepe's trusted bodyguard, looked on like a faithful dog as his master ate his breakfast hungrily. Murder always seemed to bolster Pepe's appetite. Mm, I love fresh raspberries, Pepe said between mouthfuls. Yes, boss, Manish said. The bodyguard had a short buff build. His short cropped hair, neatly trimmed goatee, and well-manicured hands indicated he was a man who always paid attention to the smallest details. Good day for a race, huh? The track is looking stunning today, Pepe said as he gazed over the Regal Buddha racetrack. kilometer-long international track, the coiled serpentine form of the circuit, which was the home of superbike racing in India, had a mixture of slow, medium and high-speed corners. It featured eight stands, which gave race fans stunning coverage when the action unfolded on race day. The racing calendar did not kick off for a few months, so right now it was open for the use of rich donors like Pepe. Bike racing was Pepe's passion, and he made sure he turned up to the track at least once a month to maintain his pitch-perfect record on the leaderboard. He was looking forward to riding the shit out of his Hayabusa as the winds buffeted his Liat 3DF Airfit suit and his custom black helmet which featured the design of a skull on the faceplate. He had owned the bike for many years now, and it was his pride and joy. The 1,340cc liquid-cooled inline four-cylinder engine was tweaked to deliver speeds of 320 km per hour, the original intended speed of the beast, 
not the stupid 299 kilometers per hour deemed legal by transport regulators around the world. Pepe's cock hardened, and he pressed his eyes close as he imagined tearing up the asphalt. He savored the daydream for a few minutes, and when his erection died, he opened his eyes and turned towards Manish. Get rid of this, and find me another one for tonight, Pepe said, pointing to the corpse. Manish, who had drugged the young man at one of the local bars and brought him up to the room, grinned. He loved being his boss's hunting dog and his protector. Pepe had found Manish wandering the streets of Panaji in his underwear when he was five years old. He took him in and looked after him like a family member. From his weapon smuggling days to his meteoric rise in the syndicate, Pepe had made sure Manish reaped the benefits of his master's wealth and profile. Manish would die for the man without a second thought. So preying on young men and throwing them at his master's feet for him to devour did not bother him one bit. Pepe raced through the straight stretches and the corners and the chicanes like he was a falcon incarnate. When you raced at Bauthun as an enthusiast, you rode with other similar bikers, and your objective was to clock the best lap times and crack the leaderboard for the day, and maybe even set a record for the month. After an hour's worth of riding, it was clear that no one was going to beat Pepe. While a lot of his fellow riders had rented the bikes from the racing centre's rental booth, Pepe owned his souped-up Hayabusa outright. It was maintained by the excellent on-site technicians and ready to be pushed to the extremes each time he visited. Pepe loved that India was one of the last few countries where Hayabusas were sold. Westerners and their bullshit emission standards, he scoffed. The horsepower and the torque generated by his motorcycle sent waves of pleasure through him. The Hayabusa's handling at high speeds was legendary, and as he blitzed past other bikes, he felt pity for the amateurs he had left in his wake. He was tempted to kick some of them off their rides, and he would have done so on another day, but his kill lust had been sated overnight. He always liked to strangle the young men, just as he was about to come, to heighten the state of ecstasy. And last night was no exception. Pepe smiled at the thought, but his beautiful reveries were cut short as he heard the unmistakable keening of a Hayabusa behind him. He checked the side mirrors. The motorcyclist catching up to him, dressed in a fitted raven black riding gear and helmet, was riding a white Hayabusa with golden decals. 
the rider's tall and broad muscular body fit the motorcycle's sizable frame perfectly. Unlike Pepe, who looked like a child seated on a large stallion. There was a whiff of wrongness about the whole thing. Pepe always turned up to Bauthun without his army of protectors, because he wanted to slip in quietly, get his murderous business done, and slip out without drawing attention to himself. A heady combo of rape, murder and high-speed racing, which was his one true private pleasure. There were people in the syndicate that he wanted to hide this matter from, because he was not the only predator in the ocean. And there was a certain person he needed to keep in the dark with regards to his persuasions. That person, the devil himself. Pepe would have to take care of him soon. He had killed many kings before to steal their thrones. This would be no different. But first, he was going to teach this new upstart biker a lesson. Pepe sped up along the straight stretch and conquered multiple corners to build some distance between him and his pursuer. Much to his chagrin, the other bike caught up to him easily. Pepe didn't like how this afternoon was panning out. Manish, you watching this? Pepe said into his mouthpiece. I am, Manish responded in Pepe's ear as he tracked the bikes through a sniper rifle scope from the roof of the grandstand. Another reason why Pepe didn't rely on an army to cover his ass. Manish was an ace shooter with a serious bloodlust. Pepe was very proud of this fact and he pitied the racer who was now riding beside him. His pursuer flipped open his visor and looked him in the eye. Those eyes, Pepe recognized them from the surveillance photographs. Shit! Edit Vidat! Take him out! Pepe screamed into his mouthpiece. Vidat was inching close to the monster responsible for the deaths of Anya. Nirmala, Ravina, and the old soldier, Suketu Prashad. He was at arm's length from the bastard who would try to steal Praveen from him. For Vidat, the thrill of the kill that usually accompanied an endeavour like this was further heightened by the knowledge that the vengeful mission he had set out on many years ago was coming to an end. This is it. This is the kill to end all kills. He would send this man to hell and cross the border with Praveen. The keening engines and the hiss of the tyres skimming the asphalt was the backdrop to the rising wave of hatred that Virat struggled to contain within himself. Vidat had spotted a single bodyguard shadowing Pepe throughout the trip, and he thought that was unusual. 
and it was even more surprising when the short buff fellow disappeared. Once Pepe had entered the racing circuit, Pepe was clearly arrogant. He overestimated his ability to hide in the shadows. He thought the world didn't know who he was or where he was. Virat would use Pepe's naivety to his benefit. The bikes were parallel to each other. One kick and Virat could down the weasel before giving him the death he so deserved. Although Virat couldn't see the mob boss's eyes, he could sense the fear in the man's body. He could taste its sickly sweet taste in the air. Virat prepared to smash into the side of the bike. The shot took off Virat's left side mirror. Another one clipped his helmet a few seconds later. Virat was in shock. He slowed the bike and then swept it close to the ground and described figure eights before racing away on a straight stretch trying to catch up to Pepe. Thanks to the wily maneuver, the next few shots completely missed Virat. I'm being shot at by a sniper! Virat screamed into his mouthpiece. Vinayak, who was acting as the getaway driver, was parked in the racing centre's car park. He was sipping tea in the driver's seat of his van when the message came through. He spat out a mouthful of hot tea before responding, ah, Shit! Ah, I mean, what? Who is shooting at you, Pai? That is what I need you to find out, Buddhu, Virat said. Virat's mind raced along with his bike. No shots had come his way in the past few minutes. The distance at which the bikes were conquering top speeds and the position of the other viewer stands along the length of the track was clearly obstructing the shooter's view. Based on his location on the racing circuit, Virat estimated that the shooter had most likely set up shop in the grandstand. Search the grandstand, Ledoux, Virat said, hoping he was right. He was still unsure what Vinay could possibly do for him in this situation. But then again, this wasn't the first time the tech genius had saved his ass. Virat made a mental note to give the man something extra before he departed with Praveen. Pepe was getting away. Once the villain completed a lap of the circuit and got to the grandstand, he could easily exit the premises and ride away to freedom via the tunnel that linked the repair pits to the entrance. Virat needed to get to him before that. I've got an idea, Vinayak said. Whatever you are going to do, do it fast, Vinayak said. Vinayak quickly opened the side door of the van and flicked a switch. A steel panel covering one of the mounted shelves parted noiselessly. Vinayak quickly scanned the beautiful tools arrayed in neat rows within the shelf. His eyes fell on what he was looking for. My sweetheart, he said involuntarily. Vinayak extracted the object of his affection and exited the van. 
The knight played around with a few buttons and knobs, and then with the concern of a father sending his children off to their very first day in kindy, he deployed one of his valued military acquisitions. A Chengdu Pinyin unmanned aerial vehicle. A compact drone with a 5km transmission range, extended flight time, active rotor cooling for its six propellers, and light but strong airframe. His little toy was just what the occasion called for. Looks like I'm going to save you yet again, Virad Bhai, Vinayak said. And while it was true that he charged the man an arm and a leg for his services, he did hold a certain affection in his heart for the contract killer. Vinayak meant it when he called Virat Bhai. The UAV rose up in the air, buzzing like a giant prehistoric insect, and flew towards the grandstand. Vinayak couldn't wait to deploy the projectile electric shock bolts that hugged the belly of the unit like a quiver full of pulsing arrows. Having lost Pepe briefly when he came under fire, Virat was finally catching up to his quarry. But there was no cause for celebration. By Virat's calculations, his helpless body would be gracing the scope of the sniper's rifle in a matter of moments. Vinayak, any luck? Virat inquired. I have deployed a drone, and it's scanning the grandstand, but I can't find him, Vinayak said. I need your useless piece of junk too, Virat began saying, when Vinayak interrupted him and said, Hey, do you know how many gigapixels? I don't care. Find him now, Virat shouted into the mouthpiece. This was it. Virat thought Pepe had underestimated him. But it was his turn to eat humble pie. Virat steeled himself as he rode up to Pepe's bike, certain that a bullet was going to pulp his head at any moment. It was now or never. Virat decided to sideswipe Pepe's bike in a dangerous move that had very little chance of success. Pepe was no slouch. He was a skilled rider. He had proved elusive and tough to chase down. Taking him down with stunt bike maneuvers, no matter how inventive they were, was not going to be easy. I still can't find him, Vinayak said into Virat's earpiece. Manish loved this moment. The moment when a man's head appeared in the crosshairs of his rifle. Transcendence is achieved when someone's life is concentrated at the point of intersection of the two perpendicular lines in a gun sight. This was his belief. Manish savoured the sight of Virat's helmet through his scope. 
He licked his lips in anticipation as he prepared to pull the trigger. Three, two, Manish took in a deep breath and then exhaled into the trigger pull. Ow! It felt like a bee sting at first and Manish expressed annoyance at the sensation. He was irritated that this minor disturbance had drawn him away from the kill shot. Then, just as he was returning his focus back to the rifle, an electric pulse of 50,000 volts and a few milliamps, which lasted for five seconds, jolted his nervous system. Manish juddered and jerked and emptied his bowel and his bladder at the same time. The rifle went limp in his hand as white froth spilled out of his mouth. Vinayak watched the bolt electrocute Manish with a great deal of satisfaction on the 4K quality feed delivered to the screen on the drone's remote control. Virat swung his bike sideways to wipe out the rear end of Pepe's bike, but his arch enemy evaded the attempt with ease. Virat nearly lost control as his tyres wobbled on the red and white corner strip. He somehow regained stability and raced after Pepe, this time tearing up after the Hayabusa along a tight hairpin. Next came a small straight stretch of the track which quickly transformed into a sweeper. This particular sweeper was an epic long corner that tested the skills of the best superbike pros in the world at such high speeds. This was Virat's golden chance. As if to confirm his decision, Vinayak's voice crackled to life in Virat's earpiece. I got him, bhai. That was all he needed to hear. Virat accelerated slightly as he entered the sweeper, his front tyre almost kissing Pepe's rear tyre. If he didn't finish him off now, Pepe would exit the sweeper, hit the long straight section and head straight for the main entrance. It would be a nightmare to find and kill him in public, in the heart of the tourist traps in Baudhun. Virat remembered Anya's severed head in the bin. He remembered the sickening display Pepe had prepared for him in the dining room of his ex-wife's house. He remembered the desecration of Nirmala's dead body. He remembered the cruelties inflicted on Ravina by the syndicate's thugs. The bikes exited the sweeper. With a final burst of speed, Virat positioned himself parallel to Pepe. Just as Pepe turned to smile at him haughtily, Virat kicked and destabilized his arch enemy's bike before crashing into him sideways. Both bikes toppled sideways and dragged the riders through the grassy runoff areas and the gravel traps, churning up a storm of dust and debris. Virat's left shoulder dislocated on impact and he screamed in pain as the heavy motorcycle dragged him for a fair distance before crashing into Pepe's bike. 
Luckily, the large frame of the Hayabusa shielded Virat's body from the collision. Virat gathered his senses before pulling his left foot from under the machine. Then he stood up. A sharp pain shot up his leg when he put weight on the ankle that was trapped under the bike. He was certain he had done some damage to it. He took in deep breaths to oxygenate his blood and let the body regulate the pain. He pulled his helmet off with his right hand and dropped it on the floor. He cursed through gritted teeth as he proceeded to put his injured shoulder back in its socket. The resulting agony felt like someone had dug a knife in his shoulder blades and was fiddling around with it. Few more deep breaths and he recovered from the shock of the torment. That arm will need to be in a sling for a few weeks. Needless to say, this was not the best time to nurse a handicap. Virat looked ahead and saw a severely injured Pepe trying to crawl away from his downed bike. One of the other bikers using the circuit had stopped to check on both of them. I think the ambulance will be here in a few minutes. Uh, do you need any help, man? Are you okay? The old man with a head full of silver hair and a hawk-like nose said to Virat. Get lost, Virat said to him. The biker now saw that the man whose welfare he was inquiring about had produced a length of piano wire from his pocket. He looked into Virat's eyes and saw the colour of death in his pupils. Blood drained from his face and without a second thought, the man jumped back on his bike and sped away. The hitman pulled out the garrote from his pocket and walked towards Pepe. Pepe had parted with his helmet and was now mouthing obscenities as he clutched handfuls of grass to facilitate his forward propulsion. He didn't dare turn back. He was certain Manish was going to finish off Virat in a few moments. He just needed to buy time. Come on, come on, you can do this. You can do this. You are a survivor. You have lived through worse, Pepe said. Then... He felt the cold kiss of the cord around his neck and heard Virat's angry voice. I will make you a couple of promises. This is going to hurt. And your head will be separated from your body. Virat pulled the wire back and tightened it with his mighty grip. This is for the ones I love. The ones that haunt me like ghosts, even in my waking hours, Virat said. Pepe began croaking and choking and mouthing indecipherable words. It sounded like he was saying, I, 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 not the real one. Whatever that meant, Virat thought. The garrote dug in and slowly sliced in through skin and vein and muscle and bone. Blood spurted on the turf and turned it into a miniature crimson forest. Pepe shuddered and shivered and shat his pants, and Virat relished every last twitch of Pepe's body. Virat had almost severed Pepe's head 
when his victim's mobile phone started ringing. It was incessant. Initially, Virat ignored the noisy phone, as he did not want anything to distract him from the pleasure of ending Pepe's life. A man who had gifted him so much misery. But after a while, something pricked at his senses. Something told him the call was meant for him. Virat released the tension on the wire and looked down at the bloody head that flopped onto the floor. He spat on it for a good measure. He could hear an ambulance and a fire engine sent by the track officials howl in the distance. They would be here in a few minutes. Virat pulled out the phone from Pepe's pocket and answered it. The voice on the phone was calm and soft-spoken. You know Virat. The devil has many names and many forms. The man you have killed is but a puppet. A poorly constructed one as I have come to realize over the last few months. But he served as a good decoy. Who are you? Virat asked. I am the puppet master. I am the true architect of the many cruelties my organization has heaped on you, Virat. A cold sensation assailed Virat's forehead. I want to thank you for taking out the trash for me. It was time Pepe stopped being the face of my mighty empire, the man said. This was one of the few times in his life that Virat had actually felt the cold hands of fear wrap around his spine. You know my parents named me Amun. Means peace, as you know. But I am no purveyor of peace. I leave death in my wake. And to that end, I had sent a particularly vicious dog to visit your dear, sick, frail uncle. I am told he was transformed into a pile of ash and his sacred remains were flushed down a filthy public toilet. Or was it a toilet in a train? I can't remember. Either way, it was filthy. Shit and flies and piss and all, the man said. Virat screamed into the phone in rage. Virat, you have caused us immeasurable damage over the last few years. And with this latest stunt of yours, our losses are incredible. That's right, we know. We see and hear everything. We are the oracles of misery. The man continued. Virat screamed some more. He felt like a fool, like a failure. His dreams of putting an end to the nightmare shattered into a thousand pieces. It is clear that my men are incapable of burying you in the ground. So I am going to take charge now. 
Virat paced around like a caged animal as he listened to the illuminations of the true kingpin behind the syndicate. Aman Godwane. I want you to remember that name. That which is the answer to this long pilgrimage of revenge you have been on. I have butchered every thug you have sent to kill me. I have dismantled every part of your organization. I will find you as well, and I will part your head from your shoulder like I did to Pepe. I like your bravado, Vidat, and I would be a fool to dismiss your threats. But here's the thing. You are a bull in a china shop. I am the viper that hides in the dry leaves, waiting to pump venom into my victims. While you were busy blowing up my business, I have been slowly and methodically extinguishing your loved ones, your support systems. And to this end, allow me to surprise you once again. Look to the east, my friend. Look towards the car park. The last of your crutches is about to go up in flames. And Virad looked. Before Virad could utter a word of warning in his mouthpiece, an explosion blossomed in the distance. The bomb sent Vinayak's black van rocketing ten feet up in the air and tore Ladu's body into pieces. The secondary explosion from the weapons stored in the vehicle sent shrapnels in multiple directions, killing three more people in the reception area of the superbike circuit. I am coming to the pastor's sanctuary, Vidat. Wait for me with your soldiers. This is the final battle of Kurukshetra, where the righteous will triumph over those who are evil. And you will realize that you have got your definitions of good and evil all mixed up. I am going to kill your son in front of your eyes. Then I will kill your friends who ride those stupid motorcycles. And finally, I will bury you alive in a coffin full of scorpions. The caller hung up. The red and blue flashing lights of the ambulance and the fire engine limbed Virat's distraught face. He felt like a tiny boat in a raging ocean with no land in sight. Vidant's left hand was in a cloth sling as he drove one-handed for hours in a painkiller haze. When he arrived at the pastor's compound, just after 4.30 in the afternoon, he was greeted by a gory display that made his stomach turn.
Virat stared in horror at Sarthaj's head stuck on a pike, planted in front of the sanctuary's iron gates. The pastor and his wife were sitting at the foot of the morbid installation. The bikers encircled them, their heads bowed mournfully. It was a silent funereal circle, reminiscent of a medieval painting. Virat exited the vehicle and joined the mourners. After a while, Virat said, They're coming for us tonight. The pastor slowly stood up, anger writ large on his face. The bikers took the cue and moved back. The pastor's wife still sat on the ground weeping. What happened, Virat? The pastor inquired. Virat explained the circumstances surrounding his injured hand and foot, the sudden appearance of Amin Godwane, and most pertinently, the sad news of Laduvinayak's passing. What are we going to do? The pastor asked. You should leave with your people. Virat began saying, That would be running and hiding, and you know they will hunt us down no matter what. Tell me I am wrong. the pastor said virat nodded you're right and yes it is better to stay and fight the pastor looked at sarthaj's pale head his dead eyes were staring up at the sky and his mouth was framed in a painful expression he suffered the pastor said then he looked down at his wife now she is suffering Sarthaj was like a son to her. Virat cast a sad glance at the pastor's wife and sighed. Then he scanned the sorrowful faces around him. Today we've lost a brave and loyal ally. Our friend, a brother, taken by deceit, slain by cowards. The same enemy will be here by nightfall to finish us. and it is my express wish and your leader's desire to stay back and fight these monsters birat said the bikers straightened their slouched shoulders and listened intently i have a plan but i cannot execute it without your help everyone nodded determinedly at this point praveen had walked out of the clinic and joined them he looked at the gory site fearfully and turned to his father for assurance I am assuming you have a bunker here. Virat asked the pastor. Yes, but it wouldn't hold more than 15 people, the pastor said. And I'm hoping this plan of yours doesn't involve hiding in a hole for months. Some key people will need to lay low if we are to succeed in this mission. Virat said, looking at Praveen and then at the pastor's wife. Get me some hay, rope and metal pipes. Virat said to the bikers before casting a glance at some of the harleys in front of the sanctuary I'm afraid some of those will need to be sacrificed tonight Virat noticed a group of shepherds commanding a huge tribe of goats watching them from across the road How faithful are the locals to you Virat asked the pastor Very said the pastor My dormitories are crowded with their children seeking treatment for addiction they will do anything to protect them and us good 
Virat said. We will need their eyes and ears. Virat waved at the shepherds and they waved back. Virat, what is your plan? The pastor asked. Virat scanned the eager faces around him and then turned to the pastor and said, Before I tell you that, I need to call someone. Godwane watched the fleeting blur of the badlands from his speeding bends. He knew places like this intimately. He had grown up in a similar part of India. His parents were sharecroppers who ran up debts and were murdered by the goons of loan sharks. The people who killed his parents were rich. The neighbors who betrayed them by showing the machete-wielding thugs their hiding place were poor farmers like them. The incident taught Aman a valuable lesson. There is no point in reserving your compassion for the less fortunate. They were just the same as the cunning wealthy, looking for a chance to prosecute their agenda of betrayal to make a quick buck. The true religion was the cult of the self. Aman believed in fulfilling his ambition at the cost of everything else. Amin's driver had decided to play some old spaghetti western tunes and the cattle boss thought it suited the sights of drought-ridden fields and orchards along the highway. The dry climate had brought poverty to the breadbasket of the country and where there was poverty, there was a strong desire to check out of life. The syndicate was here to lend a helping hand. As far as Amin was concerned, he was doing a social service. His drugs helped ease suffering. He had similar justifications for his previous endeavours. Gun running supported freedom fighters. Smuggling delivered expensive goods to the masses at reasonable rates. Sex trafficking of underage girls fed the needs of animals who would otherwise rampage through the streets, raping and murdering women. Amun was never the villain of the story. That was but a myth crafted by those who misunderstood him. The syndicate was an unheralded Indian business success story. A remarkable act of entrepreneurship yet to be replicated in other industries. A shining example of determination, passion and purpose. Aman should have been lauded. He should have been feted with awards interviewed by TV channels every two days. Books should have been written about his inspiring rise to become one of the most successful business leaders in India. Why then was he denied these accolades? Because some sought to portray him as a criminal? His activities as illegal? Heartless labels heaped on his achievements by small minds. The blood he had spilled to unify inefficient and unproductive gangs under the banner of the syndicate would have filled the Arabian Sea many times over. Yet all he received for his hard work was ingratitude. He couldn't stand the insults, so he decided to operate from the shadows. 
For a while, the other puppets, including the incompetent lunatic Pepe, took over the reins and things seemed to be on the right path. It worked because he was providing the strategy and directions as the puppet master. But this pest Virat appeared on the scene and wreaked havoc. Chaos attracts chaos. And now he had many gangs vying to destabilize the syndicate. Somehow, people developed the impression that Aman Godwani was no longer in the picture. He couldn't complain about that outcome because he had wanted the anonymity. But what he didn't anticipate was that people don't fear what they can't see. Now, he must be seen. They must witness the atrocities he's capable of. And to that end, the full force of the syndicate would in the first instance be brought to bear upon Virat and his lackeys. Once he was done burying their corpses, he would deal with the other troublemakers. Aman imagined that in the future, when he looks back at this period, he would surmise, the syndicate was having some troubles, that's all like an unexpected afternoon hailstorm that wrecks parked cars. But its foundations were solid, its might unblemished, its vengeful presence, omnipresent and omnipotent. And it showed its enduring might by crushing its enemy overnight in an awesome bloody display of shock and awe. He looked at the fleet of vehicles in front of him and behind him. His best men, armed to the teeth. His horsemen of the apocalypse. Oh, the plight of the hapless few who dared to stir the hornet's nest. Amin smiled at the thought as the vehicle sped towards the pastor's sanctuary. Instead of being stuck in the basement bunker, I could be out there helping you. Prabin protested. I know you can, but I want you to be safe and prepare for our trip across the border once tonight's fireworks are over, Virat said. Praveen looked at his feet in disappointment. The pastor tells me you have made enough progress for us to move on. He thinks the program has given you the resilience to say no, should temptation strike again. Praveen looked up and pursed his lips and nodded. You are addicted to violence the same way I am addicted to drugs, Praveen said, looking accusingly at his father. I am, I suppose, Virat said. But that is exactly what will save us now, no? Praveen said. Virat didn't answer. He looked ashamed. I don't know if I could ever love you or forgive you for what you have done. But I understand you. I understand how you became who you are, Praveen said. Virat teared up. I'm glad. Uh, I didn't think it was important for me to be understood. But in these last few months, I have made peace with my nature. And I'm glad you see me for what I am too. Thank you for keeping me alive, Praveen said. You have nothing to thank me for. This is my duty, 
I love you, son, Vidat said. Praveen bent sideways and picked up his duffel bag. The pastor's wife, who was preparing to enter the bunker, approached them. She placed a hand on Praveen's shoulder and looked at Vidat. I will look after him, Vidat. You make sure my husband and my boys come out of this safe and sound, she said to him. I'll do my best. I promise, Babiji, Vidat said. He looked on as the pastor's wife and Praveen climbed down the stairs and entered the bunker, located in the basement of the clinic. The steel blast-proof door creaked noisily as one of the pastor's helpers closed it shut. Virat watched Praveen's departing figure till he fully disappeared behind the door, knowing fully well that this could be his final glimpse of his son. The last member of his family. Virat didn't want his violent legacy to be continued, but he wanted Praveen to live. So he was going to try darned hard not to die, at least till he got his son to the border. Virat looked at his left hand, which was still in a sling, and at the giant swelling in his left foot. Granted, he was not in the best shape, and their plan to survive the syndicate's upcoming retaliation was on shaky foundations. But he was who he was. He was truly in his element. A shark was the master of turbulent and dangerous waters. That is where it lived, where it hunted, and where it died. Virat had made arrangements for one of the pastor's assistants to take Praveen and the pastor's wife to the border, should he and the others not survive the night. The bunker opened up to a tunnel which extended for nearly a kilometre to the east and offered access to canola fields tended by farmers loyal to the pastor. Virat could proceed with his plans with the knowledge that his son at least had a fighting chance. Better than what Anya and Nirmala and Devina had. The thought made him angry. He could feel the blood boil in his veins. He clenched his fists, trying to contain his outrage. He heard the pastor call out to him. Virat, it's time, brother. Virat couldn't afford to lose his focus. He had to be cool and calculated to pull off this audacious plan. He walked towards the reception area of the clinic through a series of corridors and rooms. When he reached his destination, he was greeted by the sight of the pastor and the bikers, armed and ready, like soldiers waiting for their general's instructions. Virat walked them through the plan again in a calm and methodical fashion. And when he was done, he shook each person's hand and wished them well. He watched them leave the building. When the last person left, he pulled out his wallet and gazed at Anya's photo tearfully. He put the wallet in his back pocket 
gathered his weapons load out and exited the building into the arms of the night. His night had begun, and he entered its gloom like a man who had mastered its essence. Aman Godwane smoothed down the lapels of his ash-grey Italian suit with delicate sweeps of his open palm before pulling the binoculars out of his pocket. He was standing atop a hill, a kilometre away from the sanctuary, surrounded by his best bodyguards. The spot offered an excellent view of the pastor's compound, where Amun was expecting Virat, the pastor and their men to make their last stand. The three buildings and its grounds were located on the side of a highway which ran through a sparsely populated region. There were no other dwellings for miles in both directions. The emptiness of the vast open land around him was made even more pronounced by the fact that the sanctuary hosted the only source of light in this empire of darkness. What a delightful setting to face up to my enemies, Amun thought. There was a slight chance that Virat and the pastor might not have the courage to stand up to him, that they could have fled in the cover of darkness. It didn't matter. Even if they abandoned their base of operations, Amun was going to personally supervise the destruction of their lair. Virat and Co. had burned down his house. Now it was his turn to extend the same courtesy. Once he had burned the place down to the ground, he would hunt them down without mercy. If the man had any honour, he would rise up to Amun's challenge. In fact, from what he had heard of Virat, he doubted the man would back down from an old-fashioned fight to death. Well, time to find out the state of play, Amun said to himself. He lifted his night-vision binoculars and glassed the sanctuary. He spotted motorcycles lined up in front of the main building, forming a defensive barrier. In the windows... Silhouetted against the light were dark figures holding long, tubular, metallic shapes. Gunmen guarding the perimeter, Amun thought. Good, you are indeed a son of a gun, Vidat. We are good to go, Amun said to one of his guards, who pressed a radio to his mouth and shouted commands. Fifteen vehicles, cars, SUVs and motorcycles emerged from the darkness as they tore down the highway and parked themselves in a neat row facing the compound. Scores of gunmen stepped off the vehicles and took up their positions. Amun would let the artillery do the critical damage before riding his cavalry down there. 
He just wanted to be there to walk amongst the smoking rubble, to pump bullets into bodies crushed by masonry or half-compromised by the shrapnel from his army's guns. He was a finisher. That is what he was always good at. Hire the best people in the business, get them to do the heavy lifting and then waltz in at the last moment and finish the job like a stone-cold closer. Light this shit up, Amun said. His bodyguard transmitted those exact words via the radio. Two men with bazookas climbed up on the roofs of the SUVs and sent shrieking projectiles streaking into the buildings. Explosions smashed the stonework, splintered the woodwork and crushed the cladding as fire swathed the insides of the building. Multiple detonations compromised the structural integrity of the building and a rain of debris crashed onto the parked vehicles of the attackers. There was a few seconds of awestruck pause, then all the guns barked in unison. The sounds of the night were silenced by the roar of weapons firing. A wall of bullets crashed against the sanctuary's walls. Sustained salvos crafted holes and turned stone to dust. Wood caught fire and metal structures buckled as a constant unceasing hail of shrapnel tore through the pastor's domain of hope. After a full ten minutes, the arms fell silent. Only the music of destruction competed against a rising wind. Creaking metal, the crackling of fire. A dust cloud slowly began its ascension into the upper atmosphere. Nothing can survive that, boss, one of Amun's bodyguards said. That's the truth right there, son. And you know what I'm thinking? We should do this more often. Amun said without tearing his eyes away from the eyepiece. The cartel boss noted delightfully that the barrier created by the motorcycles were shredded to bits and the gunmen arrayed in front of the building in defensive positions were wiped from the face of the earth. He manipulated the controls on his lens to take a closer look at the bodies of the defenders. He wanted to see if any of them still had their heads intact. As Amun scanned the debris field, looking for dead bodies, he noted something odd. Amun's smile turned to a frown. Amun Godwane tore his eyes away from the eyepiece of the binoculars. He spat in disgust before glassing the scene of destruction again. In the rubble of the three buildings that had once existed in the pastor's sanctuary, 
he once again found the signs of Virat Nariman's deceit. Dummies dressed up in hay and metal pipes, made to look like gunmen guarding the buildings. A wry smile graced Aman's face. An oldie but goldie, he said. His anger had turned to amusement. Aman had planned for treacheries like this. It was precisely why he was perched on top of a weather-beaten, flat-topped hill, a kilometre away from the kill zone. Ask the men to retreat and tell them to watch their backs, Amin said to his bodyguards. No one responded. Sudesh, are you deaf? Convey my message, lazybones, Amin said. Silence. A wind rose up in the valley and journeyed eastwards, caressing the scrubland and the hills that dotted the landscape. Amun felt its cold bite on his skin. That and a tingling sensation which signalled imminent danger to his well-being. Amun turned slowly to find his bodyguards lying on the ground, paralysed. Small needles stuck out of the sides of their necks. The shepherds who were loyal to the pastor were members of the Ghumri tribe, whose ancestors had thrived on this land for thousands of years. They had farmed, hunted and domesticated animals successfully to preserve a peaceful way of life. But if war came knocking on their doors, they would use stealth and guerrilla warfare to butcher their enemies and make them rue the day they decided to aggress on the Gumris. A chief weapon of theirs was the blowpipe, which shot poison darts that could incapacitate or kill their enemies. Earlier that day, Virat had requested the shepherds to monitor the movements of strangers crossing into the area. Through a series of vocalizations that was only known to their people, the Ghumris had tracked the movement of the fleet of attackers. When they reported the location of Aman Godwane and his posse to Virat, the hitman surprised them by requesting their assistance in eliminating the cartle boss's bodyguards with their ancient weapons. Silent and deadly, the blowpipes delivered their deadly payload to the vital nerves that saturated the neck region of the protectors. The men did not have a chance, and Amun looked upon their still forms in horror not knowing what grand machination had felled them where they stood. Soon, beams of light from scores of steel flashlights lit up Amun's petrified face. They flashed in the darkness 
like the fiery eyes of hellhounds that yearned to hold his personage in judgment. Out of the darkness and into the field of light cast by the torches, a muscular man emerged. The man had a shaved head and a slight limp, and as he moved closer, Amun noted that his left hand was in a sling. Recognition dawned on him. Virat, Amun said, his voice slightly faltering. Virat Nariman walked up to his nemesis and fixed him with an intense gaze. The radio resting in the hands of one of the fallen bodyguards came alive. Boss, I think we are done here. We are waiting for you to come down and add the finishing touches. Boss? Amun was breathing faster. A tightness gripped his chest. Sweat poured down his forehead and seeped into the expensive Italian silk that adorned his frame. They are looking for you, Amun. You should be down there with them for the mop-up operations, Vidat said. Amun gulped in fear. Slight change of plans, Vidat said. Why don't you get on your binoculars and look back at the sight of your handiwork? Gone. Amun did as he was told. He turned and glassed the wrecked compound. Look at what we are going to do to your army, Vidat said. Amun shifted the lens away from the ruins and towards his armed men laughing and chatting amongst themselves, oblivious to the danger that surrounded them. Amun's lips were parched. He ran his tongue over them to offer some moisture, but his mouth had dried up. A man in a green leather jacket, floral print shirt and jeans was the first to fall. He was followed by another. From the shadowy surroundings of the road, men with guns rose up from the tall grass, shed their camouflage nets, and fired an unceasing salvo of bullets at Amun's hired goons. Men who belonged to the house of the new Chennai king of Smuggler's Town. The man Virat had called before devising the plan was Chetiar's son, Nilesh Chetiar, the new lion of Bandra. A man desirous of revenge for what the syndicate had done to his father. A man who was dreaming big and wanted to take over the operations of the syndicate without the sex and drug trafficking components. Nilesh had jumped at the opportunity 
and his desire to put an end to the cartel's reign was made manifest in the massacre that unfolded via Amun's eyepiece. Time had stopped for Amun. Guns popped rhythmically in metallic staccatos that mowed down the armed men who did not get a chance to retaliate. He could follow the traceries of fire as bullets left barrels and ploughed through flesh. This is but a snapshot of what is happening to men loyal to you around the country, Virat said as Amun looked on at the orgy of violence. Amun's soldiers showcased shredded limbs, torn faces and gory torso wounds. Blood sprayed in many directions and created a floating crimson mist that gave the butchery a ritualistic vibe. This is the night you always feared. The night your reign comes to a bloody end. The night a new king is crowned and the body of the former tyrant is offered up to the wolves. Vidat said. Amun tried to say something, but he could only manage a whimper. Talking about wolves, did you know this is one of the largest habitats of the Indian wolf? The drought has left them starving, and I am told they are even feasting on other predators to satiate their burning stomachs, Virat said. What are you going to do to me? Amun asked in a pleading voice. Are you not another predator, Amun? Virat asked. Two bulky bikers emerged from behind Virat and grabbed Amun's shoulders. They then carried him downhill. Amun let them bear him away. His bravado was shredded to its tiniest atoms. It had dissolved into nothing, and all he felt was the hollow embrace of hopelessness. His feet dragged on the gravel path, over rocks and grass, as he descended the hill. They stopped at the foot of the prominence. A Harley-Davidson was parked in the bushes. The bikers grabbed a length of rope from near the motorcycle and bound Amun tightly, his hands tied firmly behind his back. One end of the rope featured a steel hook which they attached to the back of the motorcycle. They then approached Amun's body which was lying face up and took turns spitting on him. This is for our brother Sartaj, they said. It took Virat a few minutes to limp down the hill and when he arrived, one of the shepherds who had helped kill Amun's bodyguards approached him and nodded. He was dressed in a brown tunic and red turban caked in dust. Thanks for your help, Virat said. 
The man bowed deeply. The wolves, Virat asked him. There, the man said pointing to the east, near Shaitan's rock. The beasts tend to congregate there. You cannot miss the place. Three peaks like fingers. Virat heard a scream in the dark from the direction where Amun was resting. Virat thanked the shepherd again and walked towards the source of the scream. The two men who had bound Amun were now speaking to the pastor. The pastor held something bloody in his hand. The pastor turned to Virat and said, I cut off his tongue. I hope he don't mind. Virat nodded respectfully. I am going to take this to my wife, the pastor said, bringing the severed tongue up to Virat's eye level. He is all yours. Virat removed his hand from the sling and moved it to gently gauge its mobility. He grimaced. It still hurt like hell. Ignoring the throbbing hurt, Virat climbed on the motorcycle and started it. He turned around and looked at the squirming, moaning body leashed to the vehicle. Let's go for a ride, my friend, he said. He rode the motorcycle through the bushland, dragging Amin Godwani behind him. He headed towards Shaitan's rock, the headlight piercing the darkness and revealing spindly trees, ancient rocks and the green glowing eyes of night creatures. Amun's struggling anatomy ploughed into the sandy soil and the earth returned the compliment by stripping him of his skin. Canis lupus palipus, the Indian wolf, was smaller than the Himalayan wolf and lacked its luxurious coat. What it lacked in size and strength, it made up in guile and speed. While the creature had been hunted to near extinction in other parts of India, where agrarian ventures conflicted with the laws of the jungle, here in the Badlands, the wolf remained a vicious force of nature. Virat left Amun's severely wounded body at the base of Shaitan's rock, which featured three finger-like peaks that pointed accusingly at the night sky. It should have been pointing at the man who lay crying and severely battered at its base. The man who had turned Uncle Idea to ash and disrespected his remains was now covered in wounds, and shattered bones poked out of his flesh from being dragged behind the Harley. I wonder, 
if all the souls your ambition laid waste to cried pathetically like this in their final moments. Vidad mused aloud. The contract killer breathed in the night air, and along with it the memories of the women who had died for his sins. Even in this painful state, Amun's eyes were searching the surroundings, as if he expected someone to rescue him from this sordid plight. Virat wondered who it was that Amun so eagerly awaited. No one is coming to save you, Amun, Virat said. Virat could hear the padded footfalls of the wolves nearby. Here in the Badlands, there is only the justice of the sharp teeth and vicious claws, Virat said. Amun snivelled. The Indian wolf is a quiet thing, not as showy as its brethren from around the world, Vidat said. We are surrounded by them right now, and yet you wouldn't know. Amun tried to say something on the lines of, please save me. But I can detect their movement and scent, for I am like them. You are not the predator. You are the prey, Amun. Nature has cursed you with the bliss of ignorance. It will serve you well under this night sky, Virat said. Virat climbed back on the motorcycle. He cast a final glance at the author of all his pains. Virat heard a growl in the bushes. He growled back. The creatures responded with a sound that acknowledged Virat's authority, his dominion over the kingdom of death. He rode forwards slowly, so he could savour the sounds of the wolf pack rushing at the helpless villain and feasting on his flesh to satisfy their ravenous desires. The wolves tore at his bloody body with their sharp fangs, and dug their talons into his wounds to scoop out juicy chunks of flesh. The atmosphere was filled with the primal music of snarls and growls and screams. Around the bloody kill floor, in the middle of the arid plains, flowers bloomed on cacti in joyous abundance. They cast their perfume into the air in celebration, like nocturnal priests of some heathen death cult. Virat relished the sounds and the scent as he rode on in the coolness of the night. On their journey to the border, Vidat reflected on the goodbyes they had said earlier that morning, as Praveen expertly steered the Land Rover. 
the pastor, his wife and the surviving bikers hugged and wished them well in front of the ruined smoking remains of the sanctuary. Nilesh Chetiar's men had removed the bodies of Amun's foot soldiers and transported them to shallow graves in the middle of nowhere. Before reports of bullet-ridden charred vehicles in front of the ruined compound that were blocking the road reached the police, the pastor and his team had decided to move on to a secret location where they would rebuild their shrine of hope. It is in the mountains, the pastor had said. A place which offers 360-degree views of the surrounding plains and gives us the advantage of altitude. I have been planning this for a long time. The church and the clinic will rise again. And up there, on God's mighty prominence, we will heal and serve people till our final breath. Virat thanked the pastor profusely for the sacrifices he had made for him and his son. We have to thank you for dragging us out of the shadow of the syndicate. And now, in Nilesh Chatiar, we have a great patron and a protector. All thanks to you, brother. Now go. My contact will be waiting for you at Lothi. The pastor had said, placing an affectionate hand on the heads of both Virat and Praveen. Go, brothers, go in peace, and may God look after both of you, he had said signalling the beginning of an epic journey that would ideally take Virat and his son from India to Russia via Pakistan and Afghanistan. Presently, Virat sighed as he thought about the scope of the journey that lay ahead of them and glanced at Praveen in the driver's seat. Virat had driven for the first hour of their five-hour journey. But then Praveen expressed a desire to drive. The pastor has been teaching me. He said it'll help me focus on something else other than my urges. Praveen had said. He even took me off-road driving. In half a day, I was able to drive up hills without breaking a sweat. Virat was impressed with what he saw. Presently, he said to his son, The pastor has taught you well, my son. This could be my profession, Praveen said. Why not? I mean, I'm stunned at how good you are, Virat said. Praveen turned to smile at him briefly, before turning his attention to the highway, which stretched before them just beyond a wavering wall of mirage. Virat looked at him with pride. Danger will always haunt us till we cross the border. If we are faced with a terrible choice, if you have to choose between my life and yours, I hope you will do the right thing, Vidat said. I'm not sure I understand you, Praveen said. If I ask you to, 
Vidat hesitated. He took in a deep breath and sighed. What is important is that you go on and meet Pastor Tharagan's contact at the border. No matter what happens to me. I want you to promise me that you will choose your life over mine, should the need arise. But I... Praveen said with the intention of lodging a protest. Virat raised a hand with an air of finality and said, You will do as I say. Yes, father, Praveen said. That was the first time he had used the word, Father. Virat smiled to himself. I thought you wanted to kill me, Vidat said. Praveen looked at him sternly and a few moments later burst out laughing. Vidat joined in on the laughter. A loud explosion interrupted the frivolity as spikes shredded the front tyres of the vehicle. Praveen panicked and tried to straighten the Land Rover, but the wheels locked to the left and caused the back tyres to wobble. Before they knew, the vehicle swerved to the left of the road and rolled down an embankment and came to a halt against a rock the size of a cooking gas cylinder. The front end crumpled slightly on impact, and the engine whined painfully. The collision had proved to be a lucky break, because beyond the rugged obstruction, the bank of earth, peppered with black rocks and dead trees, sloped down for miles before plunging into a ravine filled with sun-baked outcrops and skeletal remains of dead cattle. Virat's injured arm had popped out of the socket again, and he was rattled. Virat looked to his right and noted that Praveen was out cold. The teenager had banged his forehead against the steering wheel, and the top of his nose seemed broken. Praveen! Praveen! he called out to his son, as he shook him with his good right hand. Then, he noted movement in the rear-view mirror. A man was making his way down to the vehicle. Could he be here to help? Virat wondered. As the figure got closer, it became clear to Virat that he was looking at the man responsible for their current plight. An old, familiar face a brother-in-arm who Virat had bested on several occasions. The vicious dog that Aman Godwani had referred to. Virat should have known.
he grimaced as he continued to shake Praveen. Wake up, son. Wake up. As the Nishachar made his way down the embankment towards his quarry, who was trapped in a damaged vehicle, vultures flew circles in the sky and cast their shadows on the ravine, which hungered for more skeletal offerings. They cawed and screeched as the scarred face of one of the most vicious contract killers in the world peered at Virat through the side window. The Nishachar assessed the shredded front tires and the dent in the bumper and said, I can see my spikes did a number on your hopes and dreams, Mr. Virat Nadiman. A recollection from decades ago. Virat was in his twenties. He was being trained by Uncle Idea in his forest hideout in the art of sharpshooting. They stayed in a hastily crafted hut, which was a puzzle of bamboo and long leaves. Rainy days and cold nights made their presence felt inside and outside the hut. It hardened the bodies and minds of Idea's students. Suffering is an essential ingredient in the creation of the perfect assassin, Idea used to say. There was something else in the remembrance. A man slightly older than Vidat, another one of Uncle Idea's trainees. He was firing at bottles arranged in a row on a low-hanging branch of a creeper-laden tree. Each time a bullet found its mark and shattered the glass, wild birds cried an alarm from the canopy that blotted out the sky. He's good, isn't he? Vidat said. Perhaps as good as you, Idea said. Virat smiled. I doubt it. Idea patted Virat on the shoulder and returned the smile. What's his name? Virat asked. He has no name, Idea said. Oh. Does he at least have a story? Virat asked in an incredulous tone. That he does. An interesting one at that. Ah, wait, the tea must be ready. Sit here. I will tell you in a second, Idea said. Virat continued watching the nameless man, engaging in his firing practice, as Uncle Idea poured hot black tea from a new utensil bubbling away over a fire pit in front of the hut. 
Arya handed Vidart a small glass before settling down on a rock and sipping the hot beverage. His parents, who were trade union activists, kicked him out of their home when they realized they couldn't curtail his violence towards other children and his unbridled cruelty towards their neighbor's pets. So he wandered the countryside, selling his worst qualities to the highest bidder, beatings and extortion gigs. Then he decided to graduate to the big league and took on a contract to kill two people who were organizing strikes against an international cool drinks company that was underpaying its workers. His own parents, Idy said. Virat spat out his tea in shock and said, What? Uh, did he do it? What do you think? Uncle Idy said with a smile as he gazed at the nameless student. From the look on your face, I think he did butcher and bury his parents. I also think he's well on the way to becoming your favorite. You admire his cruel heart, Vidat said. The young man had stopped firing, and he now strolled towards his spectators. He halted midway, then waved the gun up in the air and challenged Vidat. Best of ten. What do you say, Vidat Nadiman? Vidat accepted his challenge without hesitation and won effortlessly. And he had been doing so against the cold-blooded killer ever since. Clients had always preferred Virat for jobs that needed to be done cleanly, which was the case with most contract killings. Uncle Arya had expressed his dismay at his other student being overlooked, who by that stage had gifted himself a suitable name, Nishachar. Nishachar had a reputation for loving cruel acts of butchery a tad too much. So he was only assigned jobs which called for performative acts of extreme violence that served as deterrence. Vidat had always considered himself superior to the likes of psychopaths like Nishachar. But now, as Vidat gazed at the scarred face of the man from inside the damaged vehicle which also hosted his injured son, Vidat was not feeling so confident. Nishajar clearly had learned to be stealthy and, dare he say, mastered it over the decades. Your friend Sartaj gave me this beautiful mark, Nishajar said, pointing to his face. The bluish-pink mark ran diagonally across his countenance, left to right, like a smear of war paint. Good. Now you are ugly inside and out, Vidat said. Great to see you are in good spirits, old friend. And I want to hear your jokes come thick and fast when I carve my name into your face, Nishajar said, opening the car door and dragging Vidat out. He punched Vidat in the belly, 
forcing the concussed hitman to exhale and bend down at his waist in pain. Nishajar patted his quarry down thoroughly and extracted two handguns hidden away in Virat's clothing. He flung the weapons into the distance and said, Now we can begin. Nishachar pushed Virat onto the parched soil with the satisfied look of a snake catcher who had defanged a cobra. That is exactly where a dried up piece of shit like you belong, Nishachar said. Virat quickly glanced at Praveen through the open side door. His son was staring into consciousness. Virat tried to get up, only to find Nishachar's boots sink into his chest. He fell on his back, the impact sending streaks of pain up and down his left shoulder. Virat sat up and dragged himself backwards for some distance before popping his shoulder back in again. The attempt was imperfect and it gifted him more pain, but at least it was not hanging loose. Stand up and head that way, Nishajar said pointing to the embankment's sloping path down into the abyss. Virat stood up. His body ached and sharp pangs of agony assailed his injured limbs. The damaged shoulder and feet tormented his mind, dulling his focus on the danger at hand. Virat slapped himself across his face a few times, willing his mental faculties and perceptions to come alive. You are going to throw me down into the ravine, are you? Virat said. How perceptive. You were always a quick thinker, Nishachar responded. Virat walked sideways till he was face to face with the vehicle so he could check on Praveen. His son was still dazed from the effects of the crash. Nishachar placed himself between Virat and the automobile and started walking him downslope. There is only one end to this. You plunging head down into the rocks below. The vultures will strip the meat on your bones in half a day and your skeleton will remain here forever. Enshrined as a mark of failure, Nishachar said. What was it that irked you the most? The fact that I was actually the go-to man for the jobs that required brains? Or that your kills were so messy it drew the attention of the police to some of your clients and got them arrested? If it's advice you're looking for, I'm retired now. I'm thinking of consulting in this space. Although, an idiot like you will struggle to understand the finer points of assassin craft. Virat mocked him as he walked backwards. Nishachar rushed forwards and threw a punch at Virat. Virat ducked and the strike missed its mark. You even killed my uncle, our teacher. I suppose I shouldn't expect any better from a man who completed a contract on his own parents, Virat said. Another haymaker was thrown Virat's way, which also missed the mark. 
But then Nishachar immediately struck out his boots and caught Virat flush in his belly, knocking the wind out of him. Virat reeled and sat on one knee after feeling the painful effect of the attack. He breathed big gulps of air to recover. Nishajar delivered another kick aimed at Virat's head, but this time Virat caught his opponent's leg, placed the ankle in his armpit and rolled with it to the right in an improvised jiu-jitsu footlock, breaking Nishachar's ankle in the process and bringing him down to the ground with a huge thud. Nishachar screamed and lashed out with his good leg, this time catching Virat flush in his face, breaking the hitman's nose. Virat landed hard on the back of his head and he saw stars swimming in his field of vision. Nishachar ignored the devastating pain in his ankle and dragged himself towards Virat. He climbed on top of the hitman who was lying on his back, straddled him with his powerful thighs, rose up and rained a frenzied bout of punches. The powerful blows damaged some of Virat's teeth and crafted hairline fractures in his jaw and orbital bones. Blood seeped out of Virat's mouth and oozed out of big gashes that exposed deeper layers of the skin. A winded Nishachar, whose arms were aching and lungs were burning from the sustained period of physical assault, stopped to take a breather. The searing pain from the ground-and-pound move served to wake up Virat. His face a mask of pain, Virat shrimped sideways and caught Nishachar flush on his jaw with a powerful right-handed strike. Virat then grabbed onto the back of his enemy's neck, pulled him down and elbowed him so hard it broke his jaw clean. Nishachar rolled away in pain. Virat mustered lagging reserves of strength in his body and sat up to check on Praveen once again. Praveen was now conscious and he stared at Virat with his bloodied face. There was a concerned look in his eyes. Virat smiled at him and nodded. He then turned his attention back to Nishachar. Both combatants took in deep breaths to recover and readied themselves for another round. They then both stood up slowly and painfully and faced off against each other. Nishachar produced a knife from the back of his pants and wielded it menacingly. Virat could hear Praveen start the vehicle. Good boy, try to get away, Virat thought. The vehicle struggled to wake up and when it finally did, Virat could hear the back wheels struggling to obey Praveen's attempts to reverse the automobile. Nishajar lunged forward on his good foot, dragging the broken one alongside like an oar. He arced the blade diagonally in a manic series of slashes as Virat backed away to avoid them. Virat finally copped a gash which tore the flesh open from the top of his left shoulder all the way down to his navel. 
blood poured out of the groove in his body and saturated his top in moments. Virad ignored the pain as he focused his ears on Praveen's struggle to reverse the vehicle. Forget the vehicle. Run away, kid! Virat wanted to shout out to Praveen. Returning his focus back to Nishachar, Virat bent down, grabbed a handful of dirt and threw it into the villain's eyes. The wily contract killer was clued in on Virat's intentions and he covered his eyes with his forearm just in time. He still copped some particles in his eyes and staggered back in an attempt to clear it. Virad remembered the knife he had strapped to his left lower leg inside his pants. He reached down, only to find it missing from its designated sheath. I must have lost it in the struggle, he thought. Virad decided to take advantage of Nishachar's distracted state as the hitman tried to rub the dirt out of his eyes. Virat rushed forwards in a rugby tackle. His muscular frame crashed into Nishachar's midsection and at that exact time, the psychopath plunged his knife into Virat's back. A painful sensation overwhelmed Virat's senses as he tackled Nishachar to the ground and flopped onto the vile man's torso. Then... A temporary paralysis shut down his body. After taking a few moments to recover from the trauma Virat had unleashed on his core, Nishachar successfully pushed Virat off him. Nishachar stood up, coughing up blood and bile. He looked up at Praveen, who had managed to reverse the vehicle up the slope and back away from the rock it had crashed into. Nishachar's jaw skewed at an impossible angle as he tried to smile at the teenager's pathetic attempts to escape. Yes, try to run, you little rat. Try to run. I am coming for you after I am done with your father, he thought. He turned to look at Virat, who lay at his feet, bruised and bloodied and battered. Virat blinked away the blood which was threatening to cloud his vision. When his eyes finally focused properly, he found Nishachar verbalizing something, which Virat understood as a threat to harm Praveen. Nishachar raised his knife dropped to his knee and slammed it hard just below Virat's sternum. The blade plunged deep into the hitman's entrails. Nishachar dragged the weapon downwards, ripping open Virat's belly. He let out a guttural laughter to match Virat's screams. His entire being was devoted to watching his arch-enemy perish at his hands. His undivided focus was geared towards relishing his victim's miserable end. He had finally triumphed over the so-called greatest contract killer in India.
That was his crown nail. Even as he was drowning in an ocean of pain, Virat called on his mind to check on his son's welfare. He was surprised at what the quick glance to the right revealed. Virat snapped his attention back to the arrogant visage of Nishajar and said, Shame, our teacher is not here to see me kick your ass one last time. Nishachar looked at him quizzically. The cold-blooded murderer had failed to notice that instead of backing the vehicle all the way up to the highway, Praveen had let the automobile roll down the hill towards the two combatants engaged in a mortal struggle. The metal projectile built up speed as it raced down the slope. As he lay on his back dying, Virat coughed up blood and managed one last crimson smile as he invoked his final reserve of strength and planted both his feet on Nishachar. He shoved him backwards onto the path of the uncontrolled vehicle just as it reached them. The bulk of the vehicle smashed into Nishachar's upper body and as he landed sideways, it ran over him and crushed his body. It also ran over Virat's legs, shattering them to a bloody pulp. The vehicle raced downhill and launched itself off the edge and began a speedy freefall into the ravine below. It crashed and produced an almighty explosion which silenced the carrion birds in the sky. Praveen, who had jumped off the driver's seat, just as the vehicle started its destructive descent down the slope and killed his father's attacker, ran down to be near his father, who was in a bad way. Father, he said. Praveen struggled to lift Vidat's head up to place it on his lap. He cried hot tears into the hitman's bloodied face. Father, he said tearfully, I'm not sure about your abilities as a driver anymore. Virat said as he tried to smile, but the agony of his mortal wounds won and all he could manage was a wink to accompany his joke. Praveen cracked a half-smile and tried to wipe the blood away from his father's face. Then his eyes fell on the impossibly wide abdominal wound, and he wailed in misery. No, no, don't cry. Doesn't, doesn't suit you. Virat said, gently slapping Praveen on the cheeks with a bloody hand. Praveen tried to stop, but he failed to curtail the anguish in his soul. Is he dead Virat asked, trying to lift his head to look in the direction where Nishachar lay. Praveen looked. Nishachar's head was crushed by the underside of the vehicle, 
and brain matter poured out of it in formy pink rivulets. His body was a mangled wreck of flesh and bones arranged at impossible angles. Praveen nodded. It's done then, Vidat said. Then he coughed up more blood. feel anything below my waist. Praveen looked down at his father's legs that were shattered beyond recognition. It's going to be okay, father, is all he could manage to say, even though he realized his words didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense that he grieved for this man. It didn't make any sense that he had killed someone to save him. It didn't make sense that he had finally achieved what he always wanted. To be alone. To be free from the past. Yet, Praveen didn't understand why it hurt so much to say goodbye. Praveen, I'm sorry that your mother and sister are not here for you. It was my... I'm sorry, Vidat said. Father, Praveen began to say something and then stopped. You, Virat said, running his hand over Praveen's hair. I've, I'll be fine, Praveen said. I know, I, I know, Virat responded. Then he became still in his son's arms. Praveen refused to look down at the vacant gaze in Virat's eyes. He declined to look down at his father's bloodied, inert chest. Instead, he gazed at the treetops, where a mighty wind had suddenly picked up. It swayed the branches aggressively, before journeying over the yawning chasm that stretched out from the edge of the embankment, and travelled eastwards to the dense forest in the distance. Something savage and primal, returning to the wilderness that birthed it. Praveen let his father's body slide to the ground and stood up. He wiped his tears with the back of his hand and climbed back up the slope towards the highway. Several years later.
The medical devices beeped and trilled rhythmically, and the oxygen pump wheezed terminally in a bare and sad room located in a run-down lodge in Chorbazar. An elderly man lay on a decrepit bed, attached to the array of equipment, a translucent white blanket drawn over his sore-ridden body. His chapped lips muttered incoherent words, and his temple creased and uncreased as memories assailed his mind, which was in a state of decay. Although most of his faculties were failing him, his hearing was still sharp. And when the young man entered the room, the wily old fox blinked open his eyes. It took him a while to focus his vision. Uncle Iria, the youngster said. It's Praveen. Arya removed his oxygen mask and peered at the face leaning over him. Praveen, the youngster repeated. What? Arya said. I am Virat's son, Praveen said. Ah, mm, you found me, he said, raising his head before a coughing fit forced him down back onto the filthy pillow. <coughs> Praveen rubbed Arya's chest in a circular motion. You didn't leave, Arya said after a while. No, I didn't. How did you find me? Some friends helped me out. Hmm, must be your father's friends. Something like that. Uncle Idea studied the walls to the right with its flaky paint and small craters which resembled the surface of a corrupted moon. You figured out the truth, Idea said. I've had lots of spare time to figure things out, uncle. Father told me everything that happened when I was in the rehab clinic. And what he didn't tell me, I filled the blanks with stories from others. And a curious detail emerged that the great Virat Nariman missed. His habit of calling you before big missions and every time he was intending to make a life-changing move brought the syndicate to his doorstep. Praveen said. Arya smiled, as if he had just come across a crude joke scrawled on the shabby wall. Praveen continued. Remember when he tried to escape from India and take Dr. Nirmala along with him to Bali? The syndicate thugs were able to reach the site and kill her and gun down my father because he foolishly trusted you and rang you beforehand to seek your blessings. And what did you do? You told your former employers. I have always been their loyal employee. In this business, the hand that feeds you is more sacred than your own family. Loyalty to your brotherhood over loyalty to your blood, Heidi said. And that is why your former student Nishachar spared you? Praveen inquired. Maybe. I would like to think the kid respected his teacher. Because 
I taught him everything, including the skills that he used to kill your father. I know he died in the process, but my top student bested the great Viradnariman. Uncle Idia said, You are assuming my father is dead. Praveen said, I know so, Idia said. The man you corrupted died. The man he became in the end? He still lives in my heart, Praveen said, slapping his chest. So, you are here to take your revenge, Idia said. I am, Praveen said. How are you going to do it, I wonder? Will you suffocate me with a pillow or sabotage the medical equipment? Idea said. I'm going to leave you to rot to death of natural causes. Coward, Uncle Idea said. You are not your father's son. I told you about my father. In the end, he was not the abused boy who fell into your vile hands. He was not the youngster you influenced to take up the way of the gun. Hell, he was not even the man whose violent reputation brought you the glory of being one of the greatest assassin trainers in India. In the end, he was a guardian angel to many, including myself. He was an avenger for righteous souls. So, I am my father's son and I am not going to raise my hand in anger or hate. I will let nature eat away at your body and soul, Praveen said. Bah! You are not Virat, son. You are a weakling. You don't have the balls to do what's necessary. Praveen stood up, gave a respectful nod, and exited the room. Praveen could still hear Uncle Arya calling him a coward from his deathbed, as he descended the rickety stairs. You are a coward! You are a coward! Praveen looked up at the entrance to the room one last time, and then walked into a courtyard decorated with beer bottles and syringes and the occasional condom. He waved a goodbye to the receptionist, who was reading a porn magazine while seated right below a garlanded photo of Goddess Lakshmi, and exited the building. He stepped onto a busy street thronging with merchants, promoting massive discounts in loud, sing-song tones, and eager shoppers looking to score cheap bargains. He approached a white van which was parked in front of a textile shop and climbed into the driver's seat. The sign on the van's side panel read, Angel Heart Rescue. Call our human trafficking hotline 2565-9245, 24 hours a day. Seated on the passenger side, scrolling through her social media feed, was a colleague who Praveen had developed some strong feelings for in the last year and a half. He just hadn't worked up the courage to ask her out. The young woman who was the same age as him placed her phone on the dashboard 
and tapped her watch impatiently. Mr. Driver, I thought I was going to die of old age sitting here waiting for you, Arpida said. I'm sorry, Praveen offered. You can buy me jalebi with the afternoon tea. I prefer that over your soggy sorry, she said, slapping his arm playfully. Where to? Praveen asked. Silapet. There is an illegal brothel located right behind a bakery on Pradhan Street, Arpida said. All right, you call the police. I will make sure you get there in 15 minutes, Praveen said as he stepped on the gas. A memory dawned on him at that exact moment. Praveen and his father driving to the border before the ill-fated encounter with Nishachar. He had cracked a joke. Praveen couldn't remember what it was. But he remembered his father joining in on the laughter. Praveen smiled at the reminiscence and then let it go. He refocused his attention on the road as the van merged with the traffic and took him on another mission to grant mercy.